Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Amy, and I'm one of the pastors here. Good morning to those of you on Zoom who are we still having this, who are sideways, I think, this morning. Our apologies. Uh, well, I have a question for everyone, um, but as we often do at the start of the sermon, it's largely a question for the kids because they have such unique experiences with Jesus. So in today's reading from 1 Timothy and what I'll be preaching on today, we heard about this encounter that Paul had with Jesus, this encounter that changed his life, that redeemed his sins. And I just was curious, I would love for all of us, but especially our kids, to think, have you ever had an encounter with Jesus? Have you ever had a time where Jesus seemed especially real to you? Maybe in his word, maybe at communion, maybe in your dreams, maybe somewhere else. Has there ever been a time where you felt like you were face to face with Jesus? Maybe not Jesus in the flesh, but in some spiritual way. Some of those are probably big and dramatic moments, maybe a wild dream you had, but a lot of them I would imagine are quiet moments. So I would invite our kids and all of us to contemplate that as we enter into the sermon this morning. And if you have had a time where Jesus just seemed especially present and there to you, I would encourage you to draw it or to write it down or to write a little poem, however you want to reflect that. Well, if you were here last week, then you heard that we're beginning a series this fall on 1 Timothy. And just a few reminders for those who weren't here because it was a holiday weekend. First Timothy is a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy was his protege, his mentee. They had been partners in the ministry for years and years. And he loved Timothy like a son. And First Timothy is kind of unusual because First Timothy, along with Second Timothy and Titus, these are Paul's only letters in the New Testament that are written directly to people. They're not written to churches, they're not written to communities, they're written to people. And Paul was writing to Timothy to encourage him to stay in Ephesus and pastor the church there. This was a church that Paul and Timothy had planted and established together years ago. And now Paul has moved on and he had asked Timothy to stay. And part of the reason he's asking Timothy to stay is that the church at Ephesus, just like all the churches in the New Testament and all the churches today, had some problems, and Paul is hoping that Timothy will stay and address them. And the first big problem that he wants Timothy to address is this problem of bad teaching happening inside the church. They're not so much worried with the pagan worship and the, the bad teaching happening outside the church. The problem at Ephesus is actually inside the church. There are people in the church who have tried to set themselves up as teachers of the Jewish law, but they're misusing the law. That's what we read about last week. And he doesn't tell us exactly what the content of this bad teaching is, but we can gather from the verses that we read last week that these teachers of the law in some way are trying to bind people to the moral requirements of the law instead of offering them the grace of Jesus. And last week we read that the law is good if you use it properly, it's good for things like restraining the worst kinds of evil. And Paul had listed some of those kinds, like murdering your parents, serious evil, blaspheming God, buying and selling slaves. 
That's going to be important in a few weeks. But Paul wants the church at Ephesus to experience something a lot more uh, significant than just keeping evil at bay. He wants them to have more to their experience of Jesus than just not doing as much bad stuff or as bad of bad stuff as they used to do. He wants them not to feel like their life of faith is just striving to check these morality boxes, deep down knowing they can never check all of them. He wants them to have the same kind of internal transformation that he has had, to have this encounter with Jesus that overflows with grace. And so that's where he's going to go in today's passage. He's going to keep arguing against these bad law teachers, but he's going to do it from his own story. He's going to hold out two contrasting ways of life. There's the way of faith in Jesus, and then there's the way of the law. And his own life becomes this living embodied picture of these two ways, this before and after. So Paul tells his story. He tells how he was an abuser of the law, a blasphemer, a violent false teacher. He was overseeing the torture and the imprisonment and the murder of Jesus' disciples, these people Jesus had walked with and taught that Jesus loved. And Paul says that he did this out of ignorance, out of unbelief. And right there, where we get this kind of picture of Paul's mass of arrogance and ignorance and violence, the worst things that Paul has ever done, that's where Jesus breaks in and he confronts Paul with mercy. So verse 14 says, But I received mercy, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. God confronted Paul with his mercy at Paul's worst. He pulls him into the faith and love of Jesus. And Paul gets so swept up telling this story about the grace of God that he just goes on. He keeps talking about it, and he says, The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Or I prefer what some of the translations had, which said, of which I am the worst. And Paul has good reason to call himself the worst of sinners. He's already told us why he has been oppressing and persecuting God's people. But what about people who don't have such a, a dramatic story? Sometimes it seems like we might feel or like we have been told that for our own story of faith in Jesus to be valid, we need to somehow work up enough guilt to call ourselves the worst of sinners. Or we might think or we might have been told that to share the gospel faithfully, we need to persuade other people that they are really the worst of sinners. And I actually have a story about this. Some of you know I didn't grow up in the church, but I did grow up in Texas, which is kind of the same thing. And so a lot of my friends growing up would invite me to church. They would invite me to these big youth rallies and revival meetings and all sorts of things. So I got some church in there. But I remember going with friends to this youth conference, like a Christian youth conference. I think I was in middle school. And a lot of the conference was spent with some prophecies about Mikhail Gorbachev that never really came to fruition, but there was a lot of concern there. 
And then in the latter part of the conference, they transitioned to a time where they were teaching the kids at this conference how to share the gospel, how to talk about the grace of Jesus. And so they taught them four laws. You've probably heard these. And they would teach them to the room. This was a stadium, so I, I'm really bad at estimating numbers, but thousands of kids, maybe tens of thousands, I don't know. It was a stadium. They would call out this law, and then they would have the whole stadium yell it back. And I knew that what they were teaching was not for me. It was for these Christians. It was for them to tell me, basically. <laughs> but the first thing they yelled out was, you're a sinner. And then I remember the feeling of thousands of kids yelling back at me, you're a sinner in unison. I don't think that is the pattern that Paul is setting up here. It is fine to consider ourselves the worst of sinners when it is sincere. And I certainly have had times where I have felt like the worst of sinners, where I have known how deeply I have hurt people by being selfish or foolish. And those have been times when I have really experienced this powerful mercy from God. But this isn't the only pattern of Christian testimony. It doesn't always start with 20,000 kids yelling, you're a sinner. Paul is a really dramatic guy, and he has a really dramatic story, and he's using it here to contrast with these teachers of the law, to confront them. But it might be helpful for us to remember this as people who probably don't have the same kind of sin backstory as Paul to remember that this is a personal letter to Timothy, who does not have a dramatic story. Timothy is a third-generation Christian. He has been discipled from his youth by his Christian mother and his Christian grandmother. And there's a place in the church for both kinds of stories, for both kinds of encounters with Jesus. The dramatic, powerful reversal, like we see in Paul, and then this quiet, lifelong discipleship, like we see in Timothy and the women who raised him. And that's why I really loved that the lectionary for today paired this first Timothy passage with the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin from Luke 15. In the first parable, the shepherd has 100 sheep, one has wandered off, and he leaves the 99 to find that sheep and carry it home on his shoulders, and then he throws a party. And then the text says, there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And then in the second parable, a woman has 10 coins. She loses one, so she turns on a light. She sweeps the house until she finds the coin. And when she does, she throws a party. And the text says, there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. But how is a lost sheep or a lost coin like a sinner what sin have they committed, and how do they repent? What we see in these stories is that there's actually more to being a sinner than even the acts of sin we commit. We do commit acts of sin all the time. We can barely go a minute without doing it, so I'm not saying that. But part of being a sinner is this state of lostness. 
It's part of just being human, of living in this state of sin, of being separated from God, separated from the flock, separated from our true worth, being vulnerable and isolated, and then being unable to get ourselves home, being unable to find ourselves. And so sometimes the salvation of sinners looks less like getting knocked off your horse and being blinded and being confronted like Paul was. Sometimes the salvation of sinners looks more like letting ourselves be found, letting ourselves be carried home, letting ourselves be rejoiced over and restored. And whatever your personal experience of sin and salvation It's all this same overflowing grace that Paul has been talking about. It's all the same offer of faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And as Paul remembers this mercy and patience and grace of God toward him and toward all sinners, He can't help himself. He does something he does a lot. He just spontaneously breaks into song. He breaks into what is probably a doxology, like our kids sang, from the early church's liturgy. And he says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, then there's this implicit warning in Paul's story to the false teachers in the church because Paul said he was acting out of ignorance. He actually was really trying to do the right thing when he was persecuting the church, and he just hadn't yet learned otherwise. But these law teachers in the Ephesians church, they actually are not acting out of ignorance. They have had a saving encounter with Jesus. They have tasted grace and received mercy. They've experienced the power of the gospel, and now, not in ignorance, but in knowledge, they are leading people away from it. They are shackling people back into the bondage of the law. They are drawing people away from the love that we read about last week. And there is a consequence to all this. At the end of this chapter, Paul gives this picture of where some of these false teachers have ended up. And these verses are not actually included in the official lectionary. They never come up in the cycle of public readings. And you probably can guess why. They're really unpleasant to listen to if you hear them read publicly. So thank you for reading those, Tom. Not probably your favorite reading of all time. (laughs) Just listen. Certain persons have suffered shipwreck in the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've turned over to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Now, as luck would have it, this is actually not the first time I've gotten to preach on Paul turning someone over to Satan. I got to preach on 1 Corinthians 5 last year, and he includes the same language. That time there was this notorious, awful case of incest in the church. And this time, there are these false law teachers. Now, to be clear, Paul does not like, have a special relationship with Satan. He doesn't have the power to hand someone over to Satan. This verse points to the way the early followers of Jesus saw the world. There are these two realms. There's the realm of the kingdom of God where Christ is reigning, and then there's the realm of this world where Satan is reigning. 
And so when Paul turns these guys over to Satan, he probably means he's removed them from the fellowship of the church. There's probably some form of church discipline happening here. But he makes clear, even here, that this really harsh response is not meant to be forever. It's not meant to be punitive. It's meant to be remedial. He says, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. And then we know that Paul fully believes they can be taught not to blaspheme because Paul was taught not to blaspheme. That's his story. In verse 13, he wrote, I was formerly a blasphemer, but I received mercy. Even here, in the dominion of Satan, even here, there is hope of mercy and restoration. Well, all this language of Satan and blasphemy and shipwreck, it all sounds really harsh, and it is. But it points to how clearly and how completely Paul expected the reality inside the church, inside the kingdom of God, to be different from the reality outside. He really expected that the followers of Jesus would be living in accordance with the kingdom of God and that it would not look like the realm of this world. And we know we fall short of that. And yet we also know our story is this key verse, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We know that the kingdom of God invaded the kingdom of Satan in the person of Jesus to free humanity from the grip of evil. We know that that king of the ages became this lowly servant and died. We know that that immortal, invisible God took on human mortality. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And now we, the church, are that embodiment of the kingdom of God on earth. And this is not a society of the morally upright with all the boxes checked. This is a society of rescued sinners, of found sheep and found coins and redeemed persecutors, and hopefully even redeemed, shipwrecked, blasphemers. The kingdom of God, the people of God, the church is to be a place of mercy, a place of grace. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for all the stories in this room, all the ways that you have encountered us in quiet ways and in dramatic ways. Thank you that you are encountering us still. Thank you that you came into the world to save sinners and that we are all sinners. Would you help us to receive your grace and let you carry us home? Amen.